Welcome to the Public Health Networker, the official podcast of the Public Health Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Join us as we speak to public health professionals around the country and around the world in global, community, and environmental health topics. Join us also as we speak to podcasters in this field of public health. To learn more about us, visit publichealthpodcasters.com. And in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Summer Institute, SI, is one of the top adolescent and sexual conferences in the nation. The host of this annual conference, Fact Forward, is inviting all adolescent and sexual health professionals to join them in Charleston, South Carolina, to explore how we can achieve optimal health for adolescents. Attend Summer Institute 2023, Exploring Optimal Health for Adolescents, June 14th through 16th as we learn from some of the leading voices in adolescent and sexual health, addressing topics like adolescent mental health, social determinants of health, STI prevention, health equity, and adequately serving LGBTQIA youth. Early bird pricing runs until April 3rd, so take advantage of the discount. Learn more by visiting factforward.org SI. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Chrissy Stachel. We're going to be talking about the importance of health equity and mental health. And Chrissy is, Dr. Chrissy is the founder and CEO of Reflecting Equity. And she's located here in California with us as well in the same state. And so we welcome you, Chrissy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited for this conversation. So if you could just go ahead and tell us a little bit more about you, you know, more about the work that you do. Yeah. Uh, So I was born and raised in Miami. Um, but my family, most of my family is uh, in Colombia, in Barranquilla. Um, and so I consider myself Latin, Latina. And yeah, I spent, I guess I went to high school in Miami, but then moved to the West Coast uh, for undergrad. So I went to live in Seattle for a little over four years. And then I studied abroad some, so I don't know if that counts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, traveling and doing studies abroad whenever possible. And all of that happened before I started my PhD. By the time I kind of decided what my next steps were after graduating, um, I spent some time doing like a almost a post back research fellowship during which I decided I would go to grad school. Um, and so all of that led me to California to do my PhD. Um, and I still live here part of the time, but my company is based out of Florida. So I am, I guess, co-resident um, of the two states. Um, and I love it. I love what I do now. And I'm excited to get to share that work with you, my company, and also the work I do in mental health. So curious, what countries did you do study abroad? Yes. Um, so I think I probably studied abroad more than I studied at UW, which I find hilarious, but I loved it. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so I did one full year. Um, so I did five years of undergrad. So my third year uh, was uh, entirely in University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, I love that city. It's feels like a fairy tale. Um, it's so beautiful. And I, then I did summers abroad in India, in Italy, and in England. Um, and UW had this really awesome program where you could go with faculty. So you would get credit at UW, but you would be abroad with, with their faculty taking a particular class. Um, and so that's actually how I did all of my like general requirements. I did an art class in, in Italy, which was amazing. Shakespeare class in England. And then uh, the India study abroad was a global health class. I love hearing about that. And I think, you know, sharing that information today on the podcast can help students uh, think about these creative ways to complete their degree, having these opportunities for study abroad. You know, there's so many resources as a student that we don't always know about. 
yeah. when we're, we're when we're part of the university. So that's so cool to hear. And yes. I didn't know you were Latina too. Yes, great. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, yeah, I miss my family a lot. Especially, it's harder to get there from California, but um, Colombia is actually very close to Miami. So I try and go. I guess I haven't been there since the pandemic, but I try and go as often as possible to see everyone. Uh, do you speak Spanish? I do. Yes, it was my first language. Yes. Bueno, um, sí, también yo soy uh, Latina, uh, mitad, I guess. Mi papá es mexicano. Y uh, a veces puedo hablar español cuando me siento cómoda. Sí, <laughs> entiendo. <laughs> es difícil hablarlo todo el día. En California no la hablan mucho, so yeah. es difícil. Es interesante porque hay mucha gente aquí que habla español, mm -hmm. pero yeah, it's it's um it's not too common um to do the work of Spanish. But although there seems to be, you know, there can be a huge need um in mm -hmm. some communities. I'm hoping to do more. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I did some, like I, sh I shadowed a lot um, when I was an undergrad because I was the pre-med track for a while. And I loved trying my hardest to find spaces where I could talk in Spanish with the community. And of course, like medical Spanish is totally different from my just like dialect Spanish that I speak with my family. So it was really hard, but I appreciated the learning because it we really need it. We really need more people that can interface with um Hispanic communities. Mm -hmm, most definitely. And that's actually one of our goals with the Public Health Podcast Network. Uh, we have this four track program with our new membership this year. Mm -hmm. And um, it has four, um, you know, themes of expertise or, or focus. Mm -hmm. And one of them is um, including um, Spanish language in public health as, as part of our career development. So that's something we're building. Yeah, that's so amazing. I'm excited. Yay. Yeah, me too. So uh, Chrissy, tell us more about how you uh, made the shift from the sciences, like the lab sciences, sounds like maybe wet lab, that mm -hmm. type of work, hard sciences into the field of mental health. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I would say part of it is personal experience um, and kind of the the situations I found myself in really not prepared to think about like mental health and my own identity as a person in my science, which um, I have so many reflections on. And then part of it was some of my work in graduate school. And so I guess I'll start off by um, saying how I got into chemistry. Um, so I mentioned a little earlier that I was pre-med for a long time, um, but I had actually, when I was in Scotland, I had this wonderful um, teacher who was, uh, who I yeah, took like a quarter long class with, um, it was a module. And she was the first person that taught me about mass spectrometry. And up until that point, I had only done my pre-med chemistry classes, which I absolutely hated because of the way that gen chem is taught in a lot of different ways um, that don't always prioritize a student. And so I got to Edinburgh and I was like, oh my gosh, the classes are smaller. Our professor is really invested in us. And the class like was really willing to do collaborative learning, which was new to me at the time because um, the classes at UW were so big. Um, and I love the class and she gave me the opportunity at the end of the module to spend some time in her lab. Um, her name is Dr. Perdita Barron and she's uh, in Manchester now. But I fully wholeheartedly uh, love that I got that opportunity to work with her and do some research with her. And that kind of got me into the chemistry space. And so when I got back to UW, I 
joined a, another mass spectrometry group and like kept doing analytical chemistry with them. Um, and that's what led me to grad school. But I would say I kind of followed the trajectory of research for so long of like the next step is naturally a PhD that I never really stopped to think about my goals to get out of a PhD after I graduated. Um, and I think looking back, I feel like that's something that everybody should have knowledge of how to ask going into grad school. So I love talking about this um, because sometimes finding a group, half of it is science and doing what you love. And the other half is finding a, an environment that supports you and that fosters your ability to thrive and provides whatever resources you need in that route. Um, and also supports your mental health and your identity as a human. And I really wasn't aware of the dynamics and how that would play out in my PhD. And so I came to a point uh, with my first advisor uh, once I got to Berkeley where I felt like I was no longer being supported in the way that I needed and my success was really being hindered um, in a way that was out of my control. And so I switched groups and I really started focusing on like what it is about the relationship that a grad student can have with their mentor that is really that can either help them thrive or that can really hinder their progress. And so that kind of got me into both the mental health space, but also doing uh, equity and inclusion work for the department that I was in um, to help them kind of try and figure out how students can be better supported and how communication can improve in the department to help uh, basically improve the program to prioritize student wellness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's how I'm here. Oh, awesome. I love that. And so there's just so many themes that are emerging from this conversation. I'm kind of seeing like three main topics of focus here that we can continue the conversation on. It's things like, you know, the PhD career, being able yeah. to plan, have that um, strategy in place because you're investing all this time and effort, time away from full-time work, perhaps, things like mm -hmm. that, where you're doing this doctorate. But then there's just... I mean, it's a huge problem in public health and also in academia in general, right? What are you going to do afterwards? What's that next step? And there's so much you can do, but having yeah. that strategy. So that's one. And then the other one is on things like study abroad, which is so interesting and so much fun and actually leads into this conversation on health equity and things. Um, study abroad, I also, um, I did my master's in London and oh. I thought it was really interesting. Just the, the way, like you mentioned, the way that topics are discussed are very different. Some people call it like mirror image, like, you know, the United States and the UK. I, I don't think so. It's a little different than that. But yeah, um, yeah there's certain, um, for example, grad school is so much shorter. So if you've got a master's in London or in the UK, it's like one year. It's only one year. It's yeah. so fast. Yeah. And I believe ah, and then your PhD like, is so short too. Three or something. Yeah, I think it's like three maybe four years, but that would be on the high end. Yeah. And so we would have these conversations, like, you know, it's just this thing where um, they like to critique the United States a lot. And so, um, you know, it's like, well, why is it over there? You have to do general ed, right? And there's pros and cons to that. And I'm actually glad I did general ed because I learned about topics that I wouldn't have ever heard of mm -hmm. uh, if I hadn't. But um, over there, it's just like this straight um, direction into that specific focus, right? So if you're going to do chem, you're going to do like straight chem classes only or science classes only, and you're done and really quickly um, as an undergrad even. Uh, so that was one thing I noticed. And then the other one was on, um, at the time it was in the, I shouldn't age my date myself, but hey, it was in the late nineties mm -hmm. and um, they were tuition free over there. 
-hmm. they asked me to participate in these um, protests. Are you going to participate in our uh, tuition protest so that we don't pay tuition? And I was like, not really, because I'm still paying your tuition. (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean, still, it wasn't like that expensive compared to in the United States even. Um, So that's something I wanted to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. Just, you know, your reflections on the differences in in academia between here and there. And then, you know, how that leads to this conversation on race and ethnicity and representation and health equity. So it's really interesting. What I found in London was that having open conversations about race and critique was normal. Like mm-hmm. we could do that. Like we could be in the street and say, you know, you know, as you know, people come here and blah, blah, blah. And like, it was okay to have these loud conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What was it like for you over there in, in Scotland in terms of the academic experience and then even like, you know, equity topics? That's a really, really good question. I will say that for starters, like going to Seattle was really hard for me because being in Miami, I had no idea that I was different, you know, like everybody is Latin in Miami and like the community that I grew up around and went to school with was for the most part, all Latin. So I didn't realize there was like whiteness as a concept until I went to Seattle. And then I was like, oh, they consider me different here. That's weird. (laughs) Um, And so that was like kind of the first shock I had in school. And then by the time when I'd studied abroad, I, I naturally... I guess part of it was the class sizes and like the culture of competition that existed in Seattle, especially my pre-med classes um, that I did not see when I was abroad. Um, And I guess I'll primarily talk about Edinburgh because that's where I spent the most time. But in addition to that lack of competitive culture, I felt like everybody was very international. Like there were so many students studying abroad that I never felt isolated or strange in that way. I felt like I found a community really fast primarily with the international students, but then with the others in my classes that um, were from all over. And so it felt much more homey and welcoming to me from the beginning than I think I had felt up up until that point in Seattle. Um, And I agree with what you said about having those conversations outside. Like, first of all, I guess I wasn't really having them as much because I felt more welcome and included in in Scotland. But um, when we did have them, it felt like it was natural to talk about everybody's culture at home and either their family or like how they grew up in their society, um, which was really nice. And I feel like it was just really wonderful to have that kind of connectedness with other folks that quite honestly, it took me a very long time to have in the United States when I got back. I think even in grad school, it was a long time until I could have those conversations openly, not just in my department, but like find other people that recognized the lack of diversity in the program and like understood what I was going through Uh so yeah it's a very very different culture in both aspects I love that just having that difference of perspective that opportunity to see um, you know even when you do study abroad in India and other places I'm curious to hear what that was like Mm -hmm. but um, I think you know more people should travel more people should get those opportunities to see who we are and uh, what we're like in different environments, what it's what, how people perceive us. It's so interesting. Like you mentioned, like I grew up in LA. I grew up in mm-hmm. I grew up in Chinatown. I grew up looking like everybody. And yeah. then I thought every city was like that. And so it was shocking. I you know the first place I went abroad was Ireland. 
-hmm. And I had a really difficult time. I think it's different now, but back then it was like, why are you not speaking Chinese? Um, you don't look like you're American. You don't look like Baywatch. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you, you can probably guess my age now, but it's okay. <laughs> I love Baywatch. <laughs> I have seen some of it. <laughs> that they just, you know, I just had to face every day over there. It was like really interesting, but um, this is such a fun conversation. Uh, finally, you know, as a person of color living in certain cities in the United States, you feel like every Every city should be like that. And then you're like, TV is a little weird. You know, media is a little weird. You know, that's not real. Right. Yeah. And then you go to these smaller states in town. You're like, whoa, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, if you could tell us a little bit more about you know, what you've seen in this intersection with mental health and, and diversity, health equity, mm-hmm. Um, what are those intersections that you've seen and experienced? Yeah, I guess I'll start answering that with um, a little bit about how I got to have my own company. Um, and a lot of the work I do is primarily around equity, inclusion, and sense of belonging. And I mentioned that I started, I kind of switched into the education space because I had this mentorship dynamic going on that I wasn't okay with and I had to separate myself from. And it really got me interested in aspects of a PhD that at that point in time weren't really talked about. I think this movement around mental health has been so wonderful and so helpful for academia, at least in terms of awareness at the very minimum. Yeah. But we didn't really have that like five years ago or almost, I guess, almost 10 years ago when I started my PhD. And so part of my, while part of my work in grad school ended up focusing on like, how can we make the department more inclusive and how can we welcome people's voices and opinions and bring them into the space in a way they haven't been before. A huge part of that was what is it about mentorship that is either causing students to want to leave their PhD program or switch groups or be really unhappy in their current group or like what is what is it about this that plays such a huge role in our PhDs that's causing folks to feel like they don't belong or feel like an outsider. Mm -hmm. Or even get sick right a lot of people do develop chronic diseases during this time. Right. And some of that is from stress or from physical like hardships in the lab or things like that. And a lot of it comes down to mental health in some way, shape or form. And I don't think at the time I had quite thought about it in such a big picture way, but I did see how people were struggling day to day with anxiety and depression and how people in the program weren't very happy. And in order to make a department more inclusive and more welcoming for everyone, we have to really focus on all the aspects that go into that. So it's not just how diverse is the program or how inclusive is it at the social level, but it's like what day-to-day interactions are people having that cause them anxiety or mental health issues that we don't really talk about a lot. And so a lot of my work in grad school was focusing on all those different pieces and how they play and like kind of play together or like interact with each other. And so we started having more conversations about mental health. Um, One of the things we changed was being really intentional during student orientation to have those conversations and like give them resources that at the moment they probably wouldn't use. But like later on, it's like, do you need support from a counselor? Do you need to find one? Um, Like how in the future, how do you go about talking about these things and finding the support that works for you? Um, And I would say that made a huge difference for people just even thinking that having concerns about mental health would be accepted and like something that's normal 
as opposed to it being such a big taboo. Um, and that, yeah, that did, we did collect some data on it and it did like in the end make a big difference for students. We invite you to join us from June 1st to the 3rd for the Public Health Informatics and Technology Conference, also known as FIAT, P-H-I-A-T, taking place June 1st through the 3rd online and also in person on June 3rd. We invite you to submit an abstract and the conference is covering a range of academic and public health organizational topics are relevant, including topics such as EHR, surveillance, machine learning, AI, data visualization, public health, IT policy and governance, cybersecurity, and more. Our website is at phiatconference.com. So tell us more about the work that you are doing through your business, your organization. So I'm not directly in the mental health space uh, through the company, but uh, so my company does do equity, inclusion, and belonging consulting. And right now it's me and I have some interns that are working with me on various aspects of, of the job. I consult with organizations from academic departments to institutions to like startups and other um, organizations, mostly in science. Uh, a lot of it is chemistry, but I'm branching out into a bunch of other STEM fields, which is really exciting. Um, and so, yeah, a big part of uh, the work that I do is assessment. So I come into an organization um, as an external consultant and try and get a sense of how the culture is, like what are some pain points. Um, I then collect data on that about how all the members of that organization feel and then use that data to work with stakeholders to come up with an action plan that will be feasible within the scope of their functioning to improve the climate for everyone. And because I don't work directly in the mental health space, I have partners. Um, so I've worked with Dragonfly pretty regularly to address those mental health topics um, more directly in a way that I, like my expertise kind of doesn't allow for, but all in the scope of inclusion and wellness and making sure that employees are the priority or students or whoever the members of the community are. And what are the trends that you've observed uh, after consulting with various organizations? What are some of the key challenges or some of the needs that they've reached out about? I mean, I guess in general right now, everybody's talking about the lack of diversity in science. And I wholeheartedly believe that you can't really fix that until you think about how the culture is treating its people, whether they're employees or students or both or et cetera. Um, and so I come in from the perspective of like, well, let's think about what the cultural norms are and what some of the, I guess, operations or like strategic plans that you have and how can we make those more inclusive? So that's kind of one big theme. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also why I don't call myself a diversity consultant, because I really do think the inclusion piece and the equity piece are the first step um, to reaching like more diversity in a community. Um, and then the other thing I see a lot is in the, along the same lines, but it has to do more with uh, communication, like how people are communicating and what transparency is like. And yeah, how I guess different stakeholder levels within an organization function together and communicate and make people feel included that way. So like people know what's going on and, and how it affects them. Um, and so that's one big piece I work with communities on, just because I think it's really hard to address some of the changes you need to address in order to make a community more inclusive without the communication piece. And wow. so it's been really, really cool, like trajectory of the company in terms of what we do. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. So including the community as part of that process is important. And I like what you mentioned in terms of like these different pieces of the diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging. And as it continues, <laughs> I don't know the new spectrum, uh, the yeah. new developments of the terms, but 
you know, the assessment, right? And then identifying the problem and then actually taking action. Those are all these different pieces. And I think a lot of people want to just begin with the action piece. Yeah. What you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a good point because one of the other, I guess it's kind of like our company mantra at this point, but um, something that's so huge and that I see a lot as a reason why some diversity initiatives don't work well is because people are very fixated on action. And so sometimes the most immediate or like first step that comes to mind is like, okay, well, let's use our resources or whether it's financial or like, like human power, et cetera. Like, let's do this thing. And they make that decision without including everybody else that's in the community that will probably be most directly impacted by that change. Uh And so it's really important to flip that narrative and say like, what is it that our people in this community need? And then how can we use our resources to make that happen? And so that making it more inclusive and community driven is really important. So can you tell us about how some, maybe like a case study or a story about how an organization may have had a certain challenge? I don't know if this is Mm -hmm. any permissions for with corporations or whatever, but something where they reached out for a certain challenge and then you helped them with an assessment or, or with another service and then you saw the result. Is there a story that you could tell us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll use uh, my PhD actually, um, which is how I got into this work. Um, so we've talked a little bit about like kind of the mentorship issues that I experienced and also saw. Um, and part of my switch, uh, when I switched groups in graduate school, Um, was into a chemistry education group where I could basically do assessment at the department level and then use that data to come up with strategic interventions to implement to make the program more inclusive. And so part of this started with the mentorship piece. So I wanted to understand like what the mentorship dynamics are in the department, how grad students feel and how faculty feel about it. And then as I talked to more and more students to develop a survey that would be most beneficial for kind of communicating our concerns to the administration, Um, I started finding out more like concerns that were being echoed across the student body that, yeah, that I guess I found out we should include in the survey. Um, And so a lot of it was in general, how do you feel about social events? Like, do you feel included? Um, How do you feel like we prioritize recruitment and retention of marginalized groups? And like, how, um, how does the climate like day-to-day being in the department impact you basically? So it was those types of themes. Um, And so I ended up kind of streamlining a, a, I wouldn't call it a program, but I guess it was like an initiative or a movement where we would do the survey in the spring. And then we would have um, a team of students uh, that I led that would analyze the data and then synthesize like a 10 to 15 minute presentation out of it that we would present at an annual brainstorming session. Um, And so that was like a couple months after the survey. And in this brainstorming session, it was meant to be kind of like a town hall, but we restructured it so that the grad students weren't completely in charge. Um, And so we would present the data based on what the survey gave us. And then we would um, have some prompts for small groups to discuss, basically, like given this data and given what you know about how the department functions, like what are some practical ways that we can go about improving this particular thing? So, for example, mentorship. Like, how can we improve communication among not just your PI, but like other faculty in the department to extend your mentorship network, for example. And so then we would have that conversation and we would synthesize all of that. Um, And faculty were present, actually, I should have mentioned that earlier, so that they could kind of comment on like, is this feasible? Like, is a change going to take too much money or like, 
would we have to hire more people for this or what's the feasibility of XYZ? Yeah, and so then we would synthesize the action items and come up with a priority list uh, in conjunction with the department administration. And then we would work for the rest of the year until the next survey to implement whatever we decided were the top priority action items. Um, and so several of the action items, one of which we already mentioned was like the talking about mental health at orientation. So that's something we started doing. We changed the faculty hiring process to um, incorporate grad student like interviews of the candidates and then also their feedback on the candidates. Um, we started changing our social events. Uh, we started having more community spaces for discussion about different like equity and inclusion topics. Um, so mental health was one of them. We would talk a lot more about bias and like how does it show up in different things like letters of recommendation or when we recruit students like yeah, what's the, how do we, like, how do we make sure that we're uh, recruiting and retaining students from marginalized backgrounds? Like, how can we just have more conversations about that? So, yeah, so I did that work for three years. Um, and then after the first year, we, I added questions to the survey that was like, did you notice that we made this change? Did you participate? Like, what was the impact on you, et cetera? And so I did that work over three years and all of this is published. And by the third year of data, one of my colleagues did a longitudinal assessment of our data and we saw improvements along several of the categories that we had been like strategically working on, which was awesome. I had no idea that it would actually like be so impactful. And so, yeah, so students felt more included. They felt more valued. They felt like they could be more honest about non-research topics with their advisor. But like huge improvements um, that we saw in just three years. And I feel like actually since I've graduated, I, I know that the effort is still going. They're still collecting data and they're still doing interventions every year. Um, and so it's really cool to have watched that happen. And even more so from my perspective, like have all of the hard work and like energy that I had put into this effort actually see results come out of that and that it was more than what I expected um, so that was really, really cool. And I guess that's like the big case study that um, has led me to be able to do this work with other clients and know that I can be successful in helping them. And so that's really awesome. And I'll, um, I'll pass the links for the papers on to you. They're all open access so anybody can read them. Great. I look forward to reading them. Yeah. It sounds, thank you so much for this important work that you're doing to support student mental health. It is so needed. So yeah. what advice, what advice would you give to a student who is, or even a professional in the workforce, who is dealing with maybe the issues of mental health and or mental health and health equity challenges where, you know, they're, they're feeling excluded. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that, even if you have a sentence or two to talk about kind of like the, um, I call it the playbook, right? What we see a lot in workplaces or in uh, on campus as it relates to challenges as a person of color. Uh, mm -hmm. Things like exclusion, like kind of the, the flip side of DE diversity and belonging. Yeah. And I think, first of all, I want to say that all of those feelings are valid. I think a lot of times we get kind of gaslit into thinking that we're just overreacting or like that it's just us, I don't know, being weird in some way. Um, and so I guess the first thing I always tell people is like, it's okay to feel that way. And it's completely okay to feel like your work environment is part of the problem because I think often it is. And then after that, I guess I'm such a huge proponent of if you're able, like having therapy or like finding a counselor or therapist or psychiatrist, whatever is resonating with you. Um, 
and talk about it more. Like, I think I know several instances where I've been like, oh yeah, my, I had this conversation with my therapist and somebody has been like, wow, thank you for just saying that. And I'm like, oh yeah, like, I love my therapist. She's amazing. So that's one other thing to do. And then I guess within a, within a work organization, depending on how comfortable you feel asking either your own supervisor or somebody higher up in the company, like ask what resources they have for employees to get help, whether that's like physical help for wellness, like physical wellness or mental health and wellness um, or both. Oftentimes they're not very well publicized. And so finding someone, if you can, that has that knowledge and can pass it along is really helpful. Um, And then some organizations are now doing, they have like diversity, equity, inclusion committees, um, and the acronym can vary, but maybe seeking if somebody on that committee will have some insight that maybe you don't feel comfortable asking a leader or something like that. Um, and then depending on your level in the organization, you could um, kind of see if there's somebody external, I guess, like myself. So that would be putting myself out there, but maybe a mental health organization like Dragonfly also that could help really assess either just the mental health piece of the organization or somebody like me that can come in and say like, what issues do you have and how can we work together to solve them to make space for those conversations and for mental health to be a priority in the organization. Um, So I guess those are various different levels of things to do, but I think it's just so important to like step away from that culture of like diminishing how people feel in an organization and like starting to take more ownership over what it is that might have been the systemic root of like somebody feeling excluded or feeling like they don't have people that look like them or resonate with them in the company. So I think those are kind of the two big pieces. So it's really important, like you mentioned, um, sense of ownership. I believe the ownership has to be kind of at least two-sided where you know we have a sense of empowerment, right? We have a sense of ownership of what we can do to mm-hmm. challenge the structure, to at least um, improve our circumstances. Um, we we can only do so much to change the environment that we're in, but at least we can, you know, do something, improve our mental health. Uh, but also, um, you know, what can organizations do? Like, you know, with the role of your consulting, this is where that empowerment on their side, that ownership that they should be taking to yeah. create more welcoming environments, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Any any yeah. thoughts on like that sense of ownership or proactive um, action? Yeah, and I guess I should have clarified the last piece I said about ownership, I think is is really important on both ends, like you just highlighted. But also, I think we're in a moment where a lot of leaders are aware that the status quo isn't okay anymore. And so that kind of like, even myself as like the CEO of my company, I, I know there's so much work to do all the time. There's like always something that your attention needs to be on. And it can be really easy to deprioritize like, how your team is feeling and how other people are doing around you, but we really need to be intentional and, and ourselves as organization or company leaders, like make sure that that's embedded into our priority list for a given day to like, make sure that we're fostering a community where people feel happy, healthy, and like want to work and not just feel obligated to be there to make income, which part of that's true, but like, we need to make sure we're making a space for them to feel, to feel like they can bring their all in and be motivated. Um, part of what I, I do want to do in my work, um, especially because at Berkeley, I think a huge success of the work that I did was really empowering the grad students, which don't often get a lot of say in some of the things that go on in the department. And so yeah. part of my work is giving more power to the people of the organization I'm working with 
um, that are not all like executives or managers, et cetera, but to like make sure that they know that their voice can be heard in making a change. And of course, that's much easier if you have leadership that is on board. And so there's kind of, you know, thinking about how to communicate the importance of that can be different in different cases. But I do hope that at least right now, all of my clients are those types of people that are really open to growing. And I love that. I love being able to work with those communities. So yeah. so how can people get in touch with you or learn more about your services, your organization, you know, learn more about how they can become more inclusive? Yes. Um, so I guess the first resource would be to go to our website, um, www.reflectingequity.com. Um, and then you can also um, send us an email at info, so I-N-F-O at reflectingequity.com. Um, and then there's also links on our website to schedule a con- like a free consult with me um, if you desire. And then all of the publications that I mentioned as kind of like the case study that grounded uh, my work as a consultant now are also on our website. So feel free to check those out. And then on social media, we're at Reflect Equity on Twitter, which reflecting didn't fit. So it's Reflect Equity. And then Instagram is at Reflecting Equity. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chrissy. 